Wits and Cures. Yo! Plenty of women entering the legal profession, very encouraging numbers. However, the drop-off is just as sharp, just as dramatic after the age of 50 or so. To talk about the good news, bad news scenario of so many women entering, and yet still there is that imbalance in the sort of latter half of the legal career, I'm joined by uh, the Ritz and Cures A-team. In fact, we've got the three musketeers tonight. Firstly, on my right, because that's important that uh, you know where these people are sitting, I've got Dr Nick Carr, Melbourne GP. Welcome, Nick. Good to see you, David. Likewise. And Bill O'Shea. Welcome, Bill. Hello, He's plum setter. You are the hooker in the front row. I am. Whatever that means in rugby, I'm sure I'm happy to do it. <laughs> and now to com- you completely uh, mix my metaphors, the rose amongst thorns is Catherine Lorenz, who has joined us at last minute and so grateful for- to have your company, Catherine. Uh, Catherine is the Executive Director of Corporate Services and Governance and the Chief Legal Officer at Monash Health. Welcome, Good. Catherine. Good evening. Now, let us take uh, – maybe you can take the lead on this, Bill. Uh, you sort of put helped to put this data together. Tell us about the good news first, and then uh, maybe we can head our way towards the sort of more solemn news. Well, uh, lawyers are like um, horses. They all have a birthday in May every year. Um, I think horses' (laughs) birthdays are September. But every May, um, the Legal Services Commissioner publishes uh, basically the re-enrolments, whoever's applied for a practising certificate. And they've just last week uh, released the data for the the year ahead, and it's quite amazing data, really. Um, and I'll hold the uh, table up to the microphone so people at home can read it. But it's, um, it essentially says that women vastly outnumber men in the legal profession up to the age of 50. For example, um, in the 20 to 30-year-old age bracket, which are the you know, people beginning their legal careers, 2,700 women in Victoria are registered to practice and 1,559 men. So that's a, a huge discrepancy, mm. 1,200. Now, they're being admitted roughly 50-50 or maybe 55-45, but clearly um, the women's starters are way ahead. Um, it continues in the 31 to 40 bracket, 4,200 to 2,800. 41 to 50, it's 2,400 to 2,298. They're catching up. Um, and then between 51 and 60, the women numbers halve, but the men numbers don't drop off much at all. So that's that's the story. But up to 50, I was quite surprised because you'd think uh, if women are, are hanging in there and are still in the in practice more than men, there are more women than men in the 41 to 50 age group, some of them must be getting to the top of the profession. They must be making partner. What do you reckon, Catherine? Yes, I, I, I'm, I must admit I've never seen this data before and it, it tells a very interesting story. What it looks to me is that over the age of 41, which we know f- for women these days is prime child-rearing ages, they're dropping out of the profession, simple as that. And then by the time they, their children are sort of maybe in high school or finishing school, they don't want to be in the profession at all, which is seems strange. So they're either going off to do something else, which is great if that's uh, the law profession has given them an opportunity to segue into something else or they're dropping out altogether. Uh, And men are not, which is very, it is very interesting data. So uh, I'm quite quite intrigued about it because um, essentially um, if there are a huge number of younger women starting out, the firms are really at their mercy. I mean, if, if you don't offer 
flexible working arrangements for these uh, smart young graduates. You're not going to hold them. So even if the firms don't want to offer equal opportunity and uh, enlightened work practices, which I, I must admit in recent years has been an accusation levelled at them, now they really don't have much choice because of the gender imbalance. The gender imbalance or the gender balance now clearly favours women lawyers. Yes. So it's going to change the way we practice law, isn't it? Well, I, I think numerically you could say that, Bill, that is looking at the sort of integers. However, what we don't know from this data is what are the pathways to um, advancing your career with possible the likes of a barrister role or a partnership role and also what are the parental leave um, circumstances that will enable uh, both men and women to continue practising, you know, through that sort of busy childhood years. Do we know any anything on either either of those? Uh, well, these uh, figures questions? these figures don't show that. But I mean, these are just basic and um, you know how many people have got a practising certificate by by gender. Um, interesting by by locations. Quite interesting. There um, there are only. Um, 16 barristers in the whole country of Victoria, which I thought was pretty, you know, if you're really going to get out of your traffic fine, you've only got, you've only got 16 barristers to choose from, Wangaratta, Horsham, Mildura or Terrelgan. Very busy circuit court. Very busy, yeah. So I'll but ask Catherine, you, Catherine, come up yeah. that system. Have you found those, that aspect, hmm. the pathways and also the, uh, more the um, materni- maternity, a bit of parental leave? Let's make it, uh, you know, sort of a, um, a cross-gender. So I've been very fortunate in my career. I started out my career in major law firms at um, Mallison Stephen Jakes, as it was then known, and Clayton Utes. And I think it was would be fair to say that in the last 15 years, firms like that, the, the sort of largest firms in the country, have, have made concerted efforts to retain women, to have programs to uh, ensure that they uh, are valued and uh, can stay in the profession after children. I do think there is some reality, though, that um, it is extremely difficult to make your budget, which is what lawyers are required to do. They're expected to do time billing and um, and see your family. And um, there is a, a natural tension there. I think the other thing with um, sort of private law firms is that I think it would be fair to say that there are alternative career paths for that. And um, so, you know, going into um, the sort of work that I do now where I'm an in-house lawyer has some attractive benefits too and and also going into business. So, you know, I'm not sure that these figures reflect any bad news. It could be good news. Nick? I I find it fascinating because these figures reflect very much what's happened in medicine. Um, For many years now, there's been a small majority of women going into medicine. It's about 52% female to 48% male. That's been a a case. There's been parity or just over parity for women in the medical student field uh, for nearly 20 years. Um, By that token, because it takes quite a long time for parity then to move through the system, uh, we reckon it would have been about 2008 uh, when those students should have progressed far enough through their careers to become consultants and so on. And yet it is still the case that fewer than 3% of surgeons are women. Uh, only about 12.5% of hospital chief executives are women. And yet since 2008, we should have had parity in these sorts of fields. Uh, and even in 2015, only 15% of surgical trainees are women. So there's a huge something holding back women who are entering these careers, law and medicine. I find very interesting that the women are staying in the law right through until 40 and so on, because these figures suggest that in medicine, uh, they're, they're dropping back much more quickly. 
In fact, a, a texter has just got in touch saying this, in fact, it could be a longitudinal effect. That is, it's a generational shift that we're not seeing translated uh, in the post-50 age group because this new cohort of a of women who are entering, and in fact, a, a predominance of women who are entering the legal profession, uh, haven't fulfilled the, their career arc as such. The generation is still, so is still to age. The pipeline, pipeline hasn't found its way... Yeah, well, that's true. Is that so it could improve. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, it's true. I think that. Um, I mean, I think the whole concept of part-time partners is something that a lot of the firms have to get an idea about. I mean, why can't someone who's working three days a week have a 0.6 share of the partnership profits? You know, why do they need to work five days out of five? I mean, it's eminently usable, uh, but it does depend on the area of law you're in, doesn't it? I mean, if you're in M and A, it's a lot merger and acquisition law where it's you know, a lot of nighttime stuff and interstate and overseas stuff. But, you know, some areas of law you can do yeah, and in, within ordinary hours. I agree with that. I think there are some cultural issues in some of the law firms. There is an expectation that you're seen in the office past 8pm, uh, which is obviously very strange. I know we're in the ABC studios tonight and there's an expectation that we're here as well. But it- I can vouch that you're here. <laughs> uh, Catherine's here, Monash Health, and she's doing great work. <laughs> Thank You're you, on time David. and a half now. After <laughs> Thank you, David. Um, but I, I, I do think some of those cultural issues could be addressed both in law and in medicine, in fact. Yeah, I think that's, that's, the, that's the real issue, that um, are you entitled to a private life uh, in addition to a professional life? And that's, that's uh, I think, an issue that law firms in particular are grappling with. And I, I'm not sure that's not the case, too, with doctors. I mean, the 16-hour shifts at yeah, well, hospitals. It, I mean, I chose the career in general practice myself because when I worked in the National Health Service in the UK, I saw what hospital specialists had as a private life, and it, I thought, I do not want that. <laughs> very because they, 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 they simply didn't have one. Mm. And uh, general practice I saw as a career option that would give me the flexibility to have a family life as well as a professional life. And I think that's one of the reasons in medicine it's such a draw card for women. Uh, I had a, a wonderful GP registrar who we were training a few years back who wanted to be an obstetrician. She enrolled in the obstetrics training program, became pregnant and was unable to get part-time work and unable to get the family leave. It, for goodness sake, obstetrics and gynecology oh, training. Oh, and so I think there, there are systems issues that must hold women back that extraordinarily still apply in 2018. And I imagine the same is true in law. I think that's right. And yet we see the talent pool coming through. And certainly when I interview the graduates and young lawyers, the young women are shining lights in the profession. So we hope that they can stick it out if that's what they want to do. They're more like skyrockets, aren't they? They they, they, they get these great marks yeah. and they, they really – and the blokes just cruise along at a sort of fairly leisurely pace, a bit, you know, on, on overdrive. And the, the women just – Take take off and are eminently employable, aren't they? When they start, Absolutely. they're way ahead. They win the prizes. They and then and then it's this whole issue of well, what do you do when the time comes where you want to be part time? Is the firm going to walk the talk and offer part time practice to these women? Do you really want to keep them? And I think with this demographic, they're going to have to because there won't be enough men to fill up the spaces. I no. mean the. What have you noticed, Catherine, in your time in the law? I mean, you've you've been there long enough to have noticed some change, or or at least trends, uh, in particularly in the employment of women. You mentioned two the two firms that were very sort of proactive in retaining uh, and rewarding women. But what have you noticed across the sector? Has there been other changes that have happened even in the last sort of five to ten years? 
I think there's been a growing recognition of um, that both males and females want to have a life outside the law, which is a very welcome thing. There's also been a growing recognition that there has been some behaviours in the profession that um, um, inhibit women from getting ahead, particularly at the bar. There are some blokey cultures. Um, you know, there's a sort of an expectation that you hire a man for a, a particular um, a particular matter rather than a woman because they, they wouldn't be, you know, heavy enough in court or whatever it might be. And I think those attitudes are slowly breaking down, which is terrific. The other trend is the growth to um, corporate law practice to, you know, to go in-house because there it is an expectation that you'll have an easy your life. And I can tell all the lawyers out there that the <laughs> reality is very different to that, as Bill would, Bill would agree with me on, I'm sure. Um, but there are other um, career avenues and the law offers um, a great ability for women to do other things other than law. And I wonder whether some of these figures reflect that as well. Because you touched on a um, the other sort of imbalance, and that is that there is a disproportion of men in the barrister role than compared to women. That's so right. that's the other. Uh, well, sort the, of- yeah, the bar council claims that forty percent of barristers under ten and fifteen years experience, that is, at the bar, uh, are women. Forty percent. Now, that I, I'm quite surprised at that because the the figures that are coming out are not showing that. The figures that. Um, the Legal Services Commission published last week are that there are 2,090 barristers in Victoria, practising in Victoria, of whom 1,473 are men. So only six, 617 are women. So uh, it might be the case that uh, some of them are sticking it out, but it's still the case that um, men dominate the bar. And, and therefore, the question is, is it because those solicitors looking to brief barristers ask for a man? Now... I once uh, I once said that publicly when I was uh, active in the Law Institute you and I had all the law clerks in my office the next day saying to me that no way do they um, uh, have some sort of prejudice against having giving women briefs to do work. But you'd have to think that, um, as Catherine says, you know, maybe men have a more aggressive outward manner that might, when things are tough, they might think they'll brief a man instead of a woman. Was that you, what you were suggesting, Catherine? I didn't really explore that comment you made. I, th- I think there is that aspect of it, you know, and I think women barristers, I think we've all seen over the last few weeks, you know, um, women barristers kicking goals like Rowena or, or in the uh, mm. Royal Commission, which is she's obviously highly talented. Uh, and that's all of a sudden a big deal, like, because she's a woman and I don't understand why why that is. It was the same in the... She um, was always talented. In, in the Abuse Royal Commission as well. Exactly. There yeah. was a, a female silk leading that. So there's no doubt they can do it. And uh, I think it's just a matter of changing attitudes that um, that uh, and, and clients as well have to, you know, if, you, if you're a client there and you're told by your solicitor, well, we're going to brief... A woman, it doesn't make any a slightest bit of difference if they're the if they're the greatest lawyer in the field. That's what you want. Actually, before I cross to you, uh, you Nick, there's a, a wonderful text that's just come through on zero four three seven 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 four seven seven four. This is from Elizabeth uh, in Pran, who said, "Interesting discussion in engineering. Men are asking for part time work. It will change, but unconscious bias is still a factor for excluding women." That's a fantastic segue to exactly the point I wanted to pick up for what Catherine said, because you mentioned that I, I don't believe this should be about women wanting part-time work and so somehow being blocked. I think it's partly the huge problem I experience as a man, the expectation that men are sometimes going to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week yes. and that that is what should be normal and expected and there's something weird about women working part-time. 
I've, I prefer all my doctors at my practice to work part-time because they are much better workers. In this incredibly intense environment, they do work so much better when they have other things to do. And I think so many men would do much better off not working full-time and being at home with the kids. Be a dad for some of the time. Yeah. You don't have to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And read Dr. Nick Carr's book on being a dad. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Dr. Seuss, which you can read the two of them. Uh, the time is 28 past uh, eight. Uh, you're on Ritz and Cures on ABC Melbourne, ABC Victoria. David Astle filling in and being the uh, arbitrator tonight to ask Bill O'Shea, Melbourne lawyer, Dr. Nick Carr, Melbourne GP, and Catherine Lorenz uh, shape up and we, we normally furiously, pay furiously par- agree with each other. The parties normally <laughs> pay the fees of the arbitrators. Is that, is that, we only get a nasty surprised when we leave the studio tonight <laughs> you being the arbitrator actually but well no arbitrator no, there's no commission no tribunal here <laughs> I'm, I'm this is all pro bono work um i one before we sort of shift our focus uh to the sort of data which uh, in a very different field that is health data i'm interested to know about uh, whether exit uh, surveys have been conducted for those men and women who are leaving the profession do we know whether such a thing is being uh, well, conducted? Well, I'm sure all the firms do, but whether you would prize the information out of them would be another story. Um, I think you'd have to say that the change that Catherine described before that's occurring in the firms has really largely come from the pressure of some of their best and brightest women leaving the firms. So I think those exit surveys are having an effect, but I don't think any time soon we're going to see what they have to say. But there's no question that... Um, Women who feel they haven't been given an opportunity, as you described, Nick, to do obstetrics training, for example, should make that known to the college, for example, that they can't get part-time work because in order to train to be a consultant. I mean, that's, it's just outrageous. That I think we should have the last, last word from the woman here. Mm. What do you think, Catherine, on that front? Oh, it, I, I think that, that it's a, um, a multifaceted problem and I think um, men and women will solve it together. Um, and um, as a person who's coming up to one of the cohorts mentioned in this study that um, Bill has um, mentioned tonight, I hope that I um, remain interested in what I do in the profession and are not forced out for whatever reason that might be and um, have a fulfilling career, hopefully not to the 70 or 80 plus that, <laughs> that Bill has mentioned tonight. Don't be a number. But that's it. You want you want firms to treat you, ask people to give you rich lives and challenging jobs, and also professional pathways. That's also part of it, which is the other to, you know aspect. It's of also the story. good for clients. It's good for mm. clients to have uh, both genders. I mean, just like it's good for patients to have men and women doctors. I mean, we don't want a, a profession, be it law or medicine, that's dominated by one particular gender, do we, Doctor Carr? I'm trying not to have the last words. <laughs> <laughs> I think the answer is no, I can take that one. Uh, we're going to uh, take a song and uh, a brief break, uh, but uh, and very soon we'll be introducing uh, Associate Professor Doug Boyle, who can uh, help boil down the, uh, na- the, uh, the numbers, the health data, to look at the rising problem uh, and the spiralling costs of health uh, in Victoria and how we can cope with that and how, in fact, statistics can be the guide to enabling the future uh, policies uh, towards 2046, where we're almost reaching a kind of perfect storm of, uh, of health crisis. You're with David Astle, and we are Ritz and Curing tonight with uh, our customary guests. I know that Bill O'Shea is the regular. Dr Nick Carr uh, is the alternator. 
<laughs> under the hood. He's a Melbourne GP, Bill, of course, Melbourne lawyer, and we're also joined by Catherine Lorenz, who's the Executive Director of Corporate Services and Governance and the Chief Legal Officer at Monash Health. So very much uh, in the driver's seat when it comes to talking about health. As we are joined by our fourth uh, pundit behind the desk, uh, he is Associate Professor Doug Boyle who's the director of at the Research Information Technology Unit at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Doug. Thank you. And we are looking at the fact that the health data is showing an alarming uh, rise in costs, one that we can't possibly uh, husband or cope with if uh, we retain our current system. So it means that we need to collect this data and start to make smarter decisions about it. Tell us about um, how health data can uh, help improve our system, Doug. Okay. Uh, The key thing there is um, the spiralling challenge we have around health costs. And as you say, by 2046, one estimate was that our entire GDP output of Victoria would have to go in healthcare. So what it means is we can't keep things going the way they are now. Certainly, Dougie, Dougie, sorry, I'm pretty happy about that actually. <laughs> <laughs> Just to clarify, Bill. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Oh, well, yeah, for, for those of us that uh, um, are looking forward to the health system in 2046, I've got to do something. I, I don't care it. if you can't get into a school or catch a tram. <laughs> oh, I, just, I just want my, you know, my insulin delivered regularly and yes, proper well, palliative care, thanks. Yeah, what we need to do, Bill, is stop people having to use insulin in the first place, <laughs> yeah, right. of course. See, this is where I arbitrate. This is actually where I step in with cards. <laughs> I, I'm not, I don't want to introduce a card system, Bill. <laughs> Go on, Doug. Yeah, so... If we're actually going to affect change, what we need to look more towards is wellness and stopping people um, from experiencing the the worst effects of of poor health. We need to stop people being admitted to hospital as frequently. Um, Certainly it's very easy for us to continue building more hospitals at this point, but uh, we're rapidly approaching limits on what we can do on that front. Look, it's a real challenge. Um, so, 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 Dougie, as a clinician, um, I couldn't, couldn't agree more with the idea that we need to focus on wellness. What I need to hear from you is how does collecting data contribute to that? What's, what's data collection going to do to reduce health costs? Yeah, thanks, Nick. Look, the, where we are right now is that um, we have lots of patients coming through our communities, and the first time that healthcare really gets involved is when people already are starting to feel ill health effects. Now, unfortunately, we can't always uh, try and tackle people at the earliest stages, although perhaps we can do that through things like sugar taxes or looking at alcohol costs, things like that. But what we also need to do is look at data in the community at an early stage and provide the support mechanisms to general practice and community healthcare um, to use the information about patients to make sure that they're treated at an early stage to avoid the complications of ill health. So can you tell what sort of data are we talking about collecting? Okay, so the challenge we have in particular in Australia is around collecting data from primary care. So it's data from your GP. And the reason this is a challenge is that there are over 7,500 private companies in effect that are general practices that are out there looking after your health interests and these are general practices. Um, so what the way the Australian system works is it's privatised 
um, you're, you, you will go and see your GP and the GP will get reimbursed based on the services provided. But that fragmentation uh, makes it very difficult to really coordinate and use data on a large scale. And you've got to, of course, appreciate the challenges that GPs have there, that they're very protective about you as an, as an individual, the consumer, um, and they want to make sure that any information um, about you is used in the right way and privacy is, is respected and confidentiality. So the thing is, these aren't experts. GPs aren't experts. They're experts in primary care, not in things like consent, security, confidentiality. It's so an interesting point, isn't it? There's a few points here. One is the um, potentially the, the vast amounts of data that are coming through our system, both from GPs, from patients to GPs, and then from GPs into an acute setting. So in our hospitals, for example, we have a whole lot of data that comes to and from the GPs and also the data that the hospital collects. And, and your point about fragmentation is really interesting because what we're not good at is connecting up all of that data and then using it for the benefits of the patient. The second point you've made is really interesting as well, which is people are reluctant to um, share their data other than for in the, in the confidential confines of their, um, their consultation with their doctor, which is, of course, com- um, fair and reasonable. And we know from various sort of hacking scandals around the world that we mm. probably have some reason to be a little bit reluctant to share our most personal and confronting information that we may have about ourselves. So how do we deal with that, Doug? Okay. All right. Well, there's a few things to unpack there as well. Um, so I think the the reality is probably our data isn't used enough. It's not actually moving around the system enough. Um, you know, so I, I was in hospital last year. I, I did my my best efforts to chop my finger off. <laughs> I should point out that Doug is an avid bagpiper and he needs his fingers. I do. I well, do. I actually, that was an um, act of mercy for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> so unkind. Um, but you know, the, the challenge there was uh, I was going around several hospitals and um, I kept on having to uh, try and reacquaint the health services uh, about the medications that I was on. And, you know, I've got the same health problems as other people and things like that. Um, so, yeah, we, we need that data to move um, around. Um, in terms of the the challenges we face um, uh, trying to protect data, um, um, it, it's interesting. We, we live in a world where confidentiality and privacy are, are very public concerns. Um, but um, the, I guess where I want to start next in this conversation is that given the fact that 2046 is going to see us having to spend the entire budget of Victoria to look after healthcare, we actually need to use this data. Um, and in fact, if we use data effectively, it will make the whole population uh, much healthier uh, at the end of the day. That um, You go for a bill. So when you say use it, do you mean that uh, people should be asked when they go to their GP, do you mind or do you consent to this data being used for epidemiological research, you know, for, 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 to, to plan health services for the future to ensure that, um, you know, that our health dollar is well spent? And now, do, is that the sort of question you'd want to ask them or do you ask them, uh, are you happy for your data to be de-identified and used for that purpose? 
I think the, the day identification is very important. Look, um, when you say a statement like we have to make the day to work, in some ways that can be quite a controversial statement to work, yeah. you know, to make. Um, um, and hence, we need to take maximum efforts to try and provide reassurances and mechanisms to protect that data. But what is what is the default setting? I mean, I'm not aware of signing any form as I'm going to see my GP. Is he? Am I being harvested without my knowledge? Okay. Um, f- probably in in a lot of situations, your data is not being har- harnessed, or or if it is, it's not being effectively harnessed. Mm-hmm. Um, where projects use data for research. Um, regardless of the project, they will all be conforming to national guidelines that are backed by the law with how the research institutions and the researchers need to uh, undertake that research. So what it actually means is that um, you are almost always likely to be able to see posters or information about research activities that are going on um, on um, prat- on the on the walls in your general practice, as well as leaflets about it, the ideal situation for any research or any activity is that everyone is fully informed, um, and that, if you want to put that into context of what happens in our everyday lives, I think this is important to note that we all use things like Facebook um, and other apps on our phones. Um, and you know we sort of skip over um, these the small print when we sign up for these things, and we have the same challenges in using data for research. In that, how do you actually fully inform the whole population? And yet, we feel we really need to use this data. So the way the national guidelines work. Um, is to try and ensure that we inform patients to the maximum extent we can, but it is a pragmatic system that recognises that um, we can't always fully inform individuals to that level. So what it means is that we need to look at the benefits of research and ensure that those benefits for any project outweigh any risks. Any any concerns with security? I think there are some concerns about that. I think most people are very happy for their aggregated data to be used for research. What we don't want is to see our personal information in identified form somehow published. And I think that is the uh, distrust people have because of, you know, Facebook hacking and, you know, social media and all these, these sort of Cambridge Analytica problems, that kind of thing. And I think that is something that absolutely has to be addressed and carefully managed if people are going to trust in systems like my gov my my health record all of those kinds of things because there is an element of um i don't want my um my my information found on a tram in published form and i think that's an entirely reasonable position for people to take and it is supported under the current health privacy laws as doug quite rightly says um but the other interesting aspect of this is the um, proliferation of um, electronic medical records and the data that's held by hospitals and gp practices and how that could be used in a much more powerful form to aggregate data and use that kind of um information for the benefit of populations and at the moment we don't we're not quite there are we no is that because people don't consent to it or because we don't have the technology to do it um 
We've definitely got the technology, Bill. But they're Absolutely. not in all the hospitals. Um, I mean, our hospital doesn't have an electronic medical record yet. Melbourne, um, Royal Melbourne doesn't have one yet. No. We're still on paper. Before um, we, maybe I'll just uh, remind people that with you are with Ritz and Cures. Uh, it's 13 to 9 o'clock. You're with David Astle. And the three speakers that you've been hearing, uh, it's Catherine Lorenz, who is uh, the Executive Director of Corporate Services and Governance uh, and Chief Legal Officer at Monash Health. Bill O'Shea, a Melbourne lawyer. We also have as guest tonight uh, Associate Professor Doug Boyle, who's the Director of Research Information Technology at the University of Melbourne, and Dr Nick Carr, a Melbourne GP. So, Doug, we were talking about that, uh, that inconsistency across the hospital system of, uh, of not being having that sort of electronic platform of data collection at all the hospitals. What about the My Health, uh, My Health sort of data? How's, is that sort of at a, um, the best state it can be in? Um, my health records, yeah, so this is the national mm-hmm. um, system for, for allowing patients to have access to to their own health record and it derives its data from uh, information uploaded from GP clinics, from path labs in the hospitals. Um, it's, um, it's a system which is gradually being implemented. If you think about it, um, actually takes time to put these things together. Uh, so if you've got 7,500 general practices, and I'm not quite sure what the total number of hospitals is, but it's in the thousands, um, there's a huge effort required to actually bring um, all of these systems in line. Uh, as Curtin was saying, some hospitals are better than others until in terms of the, the systems they have. Um, but what is, is really fascinating here is that the benefits of something like My Health Records um, happen when you've got lots of health providers feeding the information in. So one of the challenges is how do you kickstart that? So if you think about it, My Health Record actually started off with an opt-in policy. Uh, but the, the curious thing about that is that when it's starting and no one's contributing data, what are you actually opting in to? <laughs> a vacuum, yeah. Yeah, so it's actually very difficult to build that up. So actually I'm uh, quite impressed with the Digital Health Agency about how they've really try- gone, been able to maximise the momentum. And certainly some areas now that uh, some areas are quite systematically using it, they're seeing real benefits and getting really excited. Nick, as a clinician, is it a conversation that you have with your patients or with your fellow uh, practitioners? So my health record began its incarnation as the patient-controlled electronic health record, oh, an gosh. even more convoluted acronym. <laughs> and Orwellian. Uh, and as, as Doug is quite correctly saying, when it, there was a vacuum, it just sucked up stuff and it wasn't much use. I'm delighted to say that in 2018, it is beginning to change. Finally, we've now got nearly five and a half million people signed up for my health record. So it's opt out now too, isn't it? Not yet, but it's becoming, be. it's moving to opt out in July. People need to know about my health record because it is going to fundamentally change the way that health data are managed. And Doug, your experience of going to a hospital, them not knowing what was happening to your mm. digit and that sort of thing and not knowing your medications. Uh, there was one research project that showed that up to 25% of clinicians' time is spent aggregating health data for the patient that's sitting in front of them. And that's an extraordinary waste it of is, time is, mm. when we should be mm. able to just get all that information from a centralised record. 
We now have that capacity with my health record. I would encourage everyone out there to go to their doctors, say, I want to sign up for this. And for older people and younger people who are interested in advanced care directives and their end-of-life choices, the My Health Record is a place where you can put your advanced care directive so that should you be unfortunate enough to have a stroke, be incapacitated, go into hospital, you have that document, your choice about your end-of-life care on the My Health record for anyone, whether it's a hospital in Melbourne, Wangaratta or Perth, to see. But more importantly, too, for example, it would show the instance, let's say, of childhood obesity because the, the, you would be able to aggregate the data, let's say, for Melbourne to work out you know, how bad is the problem of childhood obesity in Melbourne, whereas right. at the moment we don't know because it's locked up in private GP practices. Is that, is that the nub of the problem? That's that an example of how... We, you know, we can't get a global picture of what's going on. It, it's, it's absolutely the case. Um, Luke, well, what I want to actually just mention is some of the good work that's going on because the this area, you know, can um, you know be really you know really affect people uh, you know who worry about privacy and things like that. Um, the interesting thing about Australia is that because. Um, there is this culture of being protective and wanting to ensure things are done right. Um, it's it's leading us to do things better than most other countries. Um, so, what's an example uh, of that? Uh, so, an example is that um, here in Australia, we've been doing an awful lot to ensure the data we take out is de-identified. Um, and meets the sort of standards that, that Catherine has, has been talking about in terms of protecting um, individuals. Um, if you look at other countries, an example is in, in the UK, they were using data that did involve person identifiers in their care.data program, and it ended up that was it was shut down. Mm. Um, um, so, so the good thing is we're doing things better here. Um, but I don't think we often reflect on that. We often see the problems. And it's not the fact that we can afford to rest on our laurels. We actually need to be very proactive and listen to every single person and their views. Um, but what we're actually doing is developing technologies and mechanisms, and government is doing the same, in my view, uh, to really try and make sure that the rights of the individual are properly respected whilst we move to mechanisms that allow us to safely use the data. So, look, maybe as a, a closing question for all of you, if given that uh, the trend is an alarming one in terms of the, um, the skyrocketing costs of, of health care and that we are looking at uh, almost, the, as you say, the GDP by 2046, that is almost the state burning itself in the, in the sort of health crisis – what needs to change in the sort of short-term future to make us a smarter, more sort of uh, future-looking future state in the next sort of five years? What needs to change? Okay, well, I think the realisations are already out there, to be honest. Uh, so what we're actually seeing is increased use of, of the data, in particular from the primary care sector. Uh, so people need to be aware of that. Um, the protections are generally in place and it's a, it's a growing piece of work. So I would certainly encourage um, anyone, if they're going to their GP, um, do have a look out uh, for information about how their practice is contributing to some of these initiatives uh, and uh, 
I think that's a good way to put it. They're contributing towards things that um, are looking towards the future. So a greater awareness of, uh, of opting in and having that discussion with your clinic, with your, uh, with your practitioner, uh, and then it's enabling that data, I suppose. What, what needs to happen, when, would you imagine, Nick, in terms of making a better health system with the data that we collect? Well, first off, I think we need to recognise Dougie's point. We've got to collect the data properly. Yeah. And Melbourne University is starting a, a programme that's well underway um, called Data for Decisions where um, practice are being enrolled so that the GP data is being collected and used for research purposes. Number one, what we need to do is have a lot of practices lined up to do this so that we can collect a huge amount of this raw data and that's where we'll begin to start making some sensible decisions about preventative health care to stop people getting sick and ending up in the hospitals. Focusing on wellness too, which is the sort of negative data that uh, often is not harvested. We're all looking at people who are sort of being admitted or people with chronic illness, but we're not looking at those who are flourishing or show early signs of illness. That's the data we sort of seem to be, hence the, the need to at sort of first... Um, uh, sort of first response, if you like, the uh, the GP, where they're seeing things uh, at the incipient uh, stage of, yep. of ill health. Um, what about you, Catherine, working in both fields, both the law and, uh, and in um, the sort of health field? What's the change that you'd like to see enable the next sort of five years to, to make us a smarter state? So two things. I would really love to have access to my own records so that I could find out, for example, what vaccinations I've had in the last 10 years, which is far more difficult than one would expect. The second thing I would love to see um, in the hospital system is for GPs to have access to hospital information for their patients in order for the when the patients are discharged from hospital to be able to get the care they need from their GPs. GPs and for that to be uh, to be in a timely way um, and that for the data not to be lost. I think that's a terrific step forward. And also I, I think patients should be comforted by what Doug's saying that we have a regime of privacy in Australia that gives you a lot of confidence to allow your data to be collected. You know, this is, this is a, a, a really rigid, strict environment and you're not going to have a Cambridge Analytica in Australia. You're going to have your data protected by probably the, some of the world's toughest privacy laws. And I know from my own experience, trying to export data from Australia to, say, America, you've got to demonstrate that the American state has the same protection levels as Australia has, and it's very difficult because we have the toughest laws going. And, Dougie, that's what you're saying, that people should be confident to make their data available. Well, certainly I know we'll never make everyone confident, and um, I certainly respect everyone's um, views and opinions there. Um, certainly we try to give every opportunity, every mechanism to give reassurances that are backed by um, you know, years of, of work, but also things like legal review of, of processes and governance mechanisms, things if like quick, that. Nick. And it's worth just pointing out that there is no avenue for commercial exploitation of these data. It is purely research, so there's no way anyone's making money out of it. It's purely to get the useful information to do sensible medical research. It's been an uh, enlightening discussion, a fascinating one, and one that obviously will become even more relevant as, uh, as the years go by. And also practices change, and we are smarter as a state knowing how to use data. And also uh, we have been talking about the, um, uh, the pathways available to women in particular in the legal fields. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's Ritz and Cures. Uh, our hosts and co-hosts are Dr Nick Carr, Melbourne GP, and Bill O'Shea, Melbourne lawyer. Uh, our 
sort of a third amigo is Catherine Lorenz, who has joined us uh, very gratefully. Uh, we're very grateful for her company, Executive Director of Corporate Services and Governance and Chief Legal Officer, and Doug Boyle, Director and Research at RMIT, so at uh, Research Information, Information Technology at Uni Melbourne.